You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. As you turn there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever bought something online that you had never yet seen in person that once you received it, you thought, well, this wasn't quite what I was expecting. This wasn't what I was expecting it to look like in size and color and dimension and what it could actually do? Thanks to e-commerce, much of what many people are buying today, they're buying online, not in the traditional brick and mortar stores. In fact, in 2020, $759 billion worth of sales in our country happened online. That is over a 30% increase of the sales that happened online in 2019. And of course, the explanation behind this is obvious, it's largely due to COVID, and what happened with so many people staying home. But when you buy something based on a picture or based on a review of somebody else and what they were wanting or expecting, you're hoping it's actually what it's going to be. But it doesn't always match up to that. The color of a shirt, the size of a jacket, perhaps a particular product in its dimension of what you had hoped it to be isn't necessarily what it expected to be. The features are different. And so you want to return it did not come like you expected. And so companies like Amazon and Walmart and others have a good deal of their business wrapped up in returns. The shipping industry being involved in not only delivering the initial products, but returning it. Well, friends, it is this way with Jesus of Nazareth. For many people, Jesus of Nazareth is not what they had expected. They have heard of him with their ears, but they had not seen him yet in their life with their eyes. But once he came, many people were so disoriented by what he said and what he did that they no longer wanted to follow him. They no longer were interested in what it was that he was offering, what it was that he was teaching. And this is not only a problem for people 2,000 years ago, it's a problem for many people today. Many people today, perhaps even here tonight, have an interest in expressed curiosity of Jesus of Nazareth, a church like this that actually teaches his word and means to represent it honestly and accurately and live accordingly can be an intriguing place to be. A lot of churches, sadly, today seem to use his teachings as just a launch into some other commentary or opinion of today. But nevertheless, this is a church that actually believes what Jesus says he is and does what he does, actually says he does. But that's always true for everybody else as far as what they're interested in. For many people today, they imagine the Son of God who would be more to their liking, whether it be what he teaches or what he does or what he doesn't teach or what he doesn't approve of. They want to deconstruct their faith in him and walk away in a sea of unbelief. Some people later, thankfully, come back to Christ. Others, tragically, do not. 
and spend an eternity in hell for the rejection of the only Savior that God provided to be forgiven of their sins. Well, tonight's passage in Matthew 21 is a story after story of Jesus doing or teaching what people did not expect. Jesus is the Savior we need, but not always the one we would expect. And we're going to learn this tonight in three scenes as Jesus keeps adjusting our expectations. First thing we're going to learn tonight is that Jesus changes our perspective. Jesus changes our perspective. Listen with me as I read through Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. Matthew writes, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. What we need to learn in this section here is that Jesus changes our perspective. Now, just to kind of make sure we understand the scene, Jesus is drawn near with His disciples and others with them near to Jerusalem to this town called Bethage. Now, this is not to be confused with Bethany. This town, by translation, is interesting because its title actually means House of Unripe Figs. House of Unripe Figs. The reason I highlight this is because it's about to become very ironic in light of verse 18 and following, which we'll see in a few more minutes. But the disciples are sent presumably to Bethany here to get these two animals, a, a donkey and a colt, a donkey and it's basically a child. And this is apparently some conversation that as some of the commentators have described that apparently is some expected arrival here. In fact, he can imagine how this conversation is going to go, that we're going to go and ask for these animals that are apparently tied up right by the outside outskirts of town, and then going to take the donkeys, people are going to be like, hey, where are you going? It's like, hey the Lord has asked for them. As if this is some type of like password or something? Is this some type of a gate, you know, gatekeeper type of phrase? Well, presumably, but not explicitly, there's some type of preparation that has been made for this request. The key, though, is not the unpacking of the scene of the animals. The key, though, is what the prophet says about this. Because what's happening in the scene has been foretold by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9. And that's exactly the citation we see here in verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is key on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. What you see here in this text is you see the humility of a Savior and the honor of a people. 
which are not necessarily matching up as we're going to see in the coming weeks ahead. The humility of the Savior, as Zechariah is being referencing here in Zechariah chapter 9, is that it really is a point of contrast. You have this declaration of a king coming to God's people, and yet he is described as humble. And his humility is seen in what he decides to ride in on. Unlike a king of old, perhaps riding in on a war horse or coming in on a chariot or marching in front of a triumphant army, this king actually comes as a man of peace. He is distinctive in his transportation selection, for he does so to make a statement. A donkey itself was an animal of peace, this colt as he would be described as riding on. It would be something you would expect maybe a priest or a merchant to ride in, not a king. It even says here in the phrase on the Zechariah that he is a beast of burden, a lowly animal. A king on a donkey would be a contradiction. But this is a continued theme throughout Jesus' ministry. From the very arrival of his birth in his nativity scene, you have this great Emmanuel, God with us. In a manger? With shepherds? Jesus throughout his entire life is disorienting as he continually upturns, turns over the expectation of what we would expect him to be like, how we would expect him to enter. The disciples did exactly as he was asked them to do in verse 6. Brings the donkey. He rides in. Now, notice the response of the crowd. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, let me just describe to you the scene here, because this might be confusing, because you're like, wait a minute, the crowd is seemingly having a conversation with another crowd. Here's exactly basically what's happening. Jesus has established a reputation prior to getting to Jerusalem. He has been in Jerusalem before, but he spent very little time of his earthly ministry in Jerusalem. John has spoken about that in more extensively in his record. But what you have here is now Matthew, he is approaching Jerusalem. In fact, where he's at in these towns is basically what you'd call call bedroom communities. He is in the suburbs of the city of Jerusalem. And as he's making his way through the suburbs, he is kind of picking up mass. He is picking up followers because the crowd, who's not even the residents of Jerusalem, the crowd has been hearing about him. Now, you have to understand, the crowd is normally making its way to Jerusalem because this is a time of the Passover. There would be upwards of millions of people coming to Jerusalem for the sacrifice, for this time of the Passover. But prior to even their own pilgrimage themselves, they've been hearing and some of them have been seeing Jesus working his miracles, teaching his teachings, has been blowing their mind. So now this crowd who's sort of traveling with him at this point Now, joining with him as caravan is doing two things. They're either taking off their cloaks, they're taking off their outer garments, and they're laying it down in front of the donkeys traveling in, or they're taking trees and they're cutting off branches and laying it down in front of him. These are acts of submission. To take your cloak off and to lay it down in front of the donkey is an act of submission to the person to whom you're on. Now, this so far seems commendable. This so far seems like, man... This is a pretty good following. I mean, this thing is about to go viral. In fact, you can even see there in the conversation what takes place. Verse 10, 
When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? What have they already been crying out? It says in verse 9, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they are clearly praising God. They're clearly offering praise to God. They're, they're giving credit to Jesus. And then when they get asked who he is, this is where things start to turn, to become more telling, to be so close and yet still so far. Look at verse 11. And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. What becomes a point of concern is that the crowd seemingly has been worked up to an, into a frenzy because of what they're hoping Jesus is going to deliver. What we can see here amongst this crowd is that they are understanding something different about Jesus than he actually is. See, what you have to understand is the context in which Jesus is entering, the city in which they're occupying, the time in which they're living. May I just remind you that the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel are being inundated and occupied by Roman Empire. They're living under a brutal, outside, overreaching rule over the top of them. That taxes them, creates laws above them, can ask to do anything of them that they want to do. And there's anything that a patriotic Jew would want is the liberation of their country from Roman occupation. This is exactly what they're hoping for. As would become increasingly true in the weeks to follow, and the days to follow rather, as you can see what unpacks in Jesus' life. And how the crowd that cheers for him one day will eventually yell to crucify him another. Why is this? Because honestly, what it was that they are wanting is not what Jesus was promising. What we begin to see is that what we have here in the text is no different than what we have today. Many people want to march under the banner of Jesus and will give their praise to Jesus in so much as they think he will give them back their fill in the blank. Give them back their relationship. Give them back their country. Give them back their job. Give them back their reputation. We see this so commonly today as people are often using Jesus as a currency to trade in for really a greater goal than simply anything Jesus would offer them. Everybody wants a savior. Some people even want to be their own savior, but other people want another to save them. The question is, save them from what? Save them from what? Listen to an old hymn from Henry Milman, wrote this in the 1800s, titled, Ride On, Ride On in Majesty. This is what the hymn says, Ride On, Ride On in Majesty. Hark, all the tribes Hosanna cry. Thy humble beast pursues his road with palms and scattered garments strode. Ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp ride on to die. O Christ, thy triumphs now begin, O captive death and conquered sin. Ride on, ride on in majesty, your last and fiercest strife is nigh. 
The father on his sapphire throne expects his own anointed son. Ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp, ride on to die. Bow thy meek head to mortal pain, then take, O God, thy power and reign. Can I ask you a question, friend? If Jesus could ride on in victory in your life, what would that look like? What is it that you're wanting Jesus to provide you? What is it you want Him to save you from? From loneliness? From singleness? From marriage? From poverty? From political injustice? From marriage strife? From rebellious children? From financial uncertainty? From an infertile womb? Jesus can do that. And in some of your lives, He actually may do that. But what if He does not? What if Jesus only saves you from your sin? What if Jesus only promises you forgiveness and offers ransom that you otherwise cannot pay? What if Jesus only offers you peace with God and not with man? Would that be enough for you? Would that be enough for you to surrender your life to Him? Or would you become like the crowd who one day cheers for Him and the next day will dismiss Him? because He wouldn't provide the salvation they otherwise wanted themselves. See, Jesus changes our perspective as to what we need to be saved from. Secondly, Jesus challenges our worship. Jesus challenges our worship. Look at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and of nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. All right, now Matthew makes it look like this scene just happens right after the riding in moment on the donkey. But actually, as we can see in the comparing with the other gospel accounts, actually, this is the next day. Matthew's putting them close to by, side by side, so we can kind of see some common features here. The reality is, is that Jesus has gone out of the town. He's come now back into Jerusalem, and he's come to the temple. Now, this is not Jesus' first time having a rather combative experience in the temple. In fact, in John chapter 2, we see this already happened once in Jesus' ministry. He's doing it now again a second time. Here's the scene. 
Jesus is walking into a gigantic courtyard that's not quite the, the place where the sacrifice is being offered. It'd be the court of Gentiles. <coughs> My apologies. Excuse me. The idea here is what's happening is that what you can see is that Jesus is realizing he's coming into a courtyard where people are having to do business. Now, initially, this seems like it makes sense. Let me explain why. You have millions of people coming to Jerusalem every year for the Passover. When they come to the Passover, they want to make animal sacrifices in keeping with what the law has commanded. They don't want to bring their animals all the way from home. So they want to come into town and to buy some animals. That's problem number one. They need to have a dress. Problem number two is where they live, they have different currency. We know this in our own city. We have people from different countries. You come into the United States, you got to trade your currency into the currency of the United States currency. Well, the Jerusalem temple had its own religious currency. So they've got to trade their currency into temple currency and to get some animals. Okay, all this seems reasonable and fine. Services are being offered, but here's the problem. Take a normal service for a normal reason, and now they're being using it to exploit people. Here's why. Because when you'd come in to buy an animal, and you'd have to first trade, you'd have to first trade your currency. Well, the problem is you would have a 6% currency conversion tax. So 6% right away they're making off of you just in converting your currency to temple currency. But there's another problem. Another problem is if you don't have the exact change, mm, stinks to be you because now they're going to charge you another 6% to convert the currency to the right amount that it should be translated to. Okay, so now we're 12% they're making off of you. Friends, that's not the only problem. Now that you've got your temple money, now you've got to go buy your animal. Now, depending on how much money you have, there's the kind of animal you're going to get. You're going to get a goat or you're going to get a dove. If you don't have much money, you're going to get doves. That's what you're going to buy. The problem is when you come into the temple where you now need your animal to make the sacrifice, the priest would offer on behalf of you and your family, you're going to go buy that. But the problem is this. The price of those animals would be as high as 50 times more than the price of any animals outside the temple. Jesus knows we have come so far from where all this is supposed to have gone. And Jesus does something pretty radical here that I think a lot of people are not aware that Jesus could get like this. He gets righteously angry to the point where he is actually going to people's places of business and he is turning over the temples. He is making a mess. He is making a scene. And listen to what he says again. He said to them, verse 13, my, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. He's quoting from Isaiah 56 here. This is what he is doing. Jesus is demonstrating his zeal for the Lord as a righteous holy God to the point of even demonstrating righteous anger when those who have indeed traded on the backs of other people who wanted to worship God. You know what this reminds me of today? This reminds me today of what is a parasite on the church of Jesus Christ today called the prosperity gospel that preys on people's desire for help for healing, 
preys on people's desire for God to do a work in their life and promises God will deliver this to them if they will only give a seed offering. They don't want any plants. They want cash. They don't want a little. They want a lot. And the belief is, as it's told to such individuals, is that the more you give, the more God will give. And so they begin to teach people to barter with God. They are praying on people in their desperate condition. It no more discussed God today as it did back then. And I can only imagine if Jesus was physically present, what he would do in such places that are now houses of apostasy, preaching a false gospel, not in any way keeping with what faith alone and Christ alone, because of his grace alone, is what is taught in the scriptures. Jesus was righteously angry at the people that preyed upon his people. But then look at his compassion. It's amazing, the duality here. How he's righteous against, uh, righteously angry against the wicked, but righteously compassion against the hurting. Look at verse 14. And the blind came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So he's, he's upsetting tables, and he's healing the sick. Healing the blind and the lame. You think the chief priest like, man, we needed a good spring cleaning in here. Thank you. Not all what they say. They're actually upset with him. In fact, look at when they get upset because you hear the temple says the children are crying out. Presumably, young children had come maybe for the bar mitzvah time. Young children had come to the temple crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Very similar to what was said earlier in verse 9. It says, Hosanna to the son of David. And it says they were indignant. And they're basically telling Jesus, hey, get the children to behave. Get the children to get in line. In fact, for that matter, everything out here is out of order. And Jesus is like, you're dead right. You are out of order. Jesus is saying this exactly to them. As he quotes Psalm chapter 8, verse 2, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Jesus is challenging our worship here. What is it that we're wanting? What is it that we're loving? What is it that we're committed to? Oh, what a joyful scene this is to see. God doesn't want your money. God wants your heart. God's not looking for you to dress a certain way. Looking for you to impress people around you. God wants to know, are you going to praise him even when people deny that you should be praising him? God wants your praise and worship of him. And then thirdly, let's see what Jesus does here. He not only changes our perspective, he not only challenges our worship, thirdly, he informs our faith. Look at verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, so he's coming back a second time, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, 
you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now let's set the scene to make sure you understand what's happening here. Jesus is not concerned about agricultural productivity. This is not Jesus turning his attention to a fig tree as if he's disappointing the fig tree. The fig tree he is showing here is an analogy, a picture of the people of Israel. Presumably the worship having resumed again and nothing has changed. He comes across this fig tree. Now, just so you understand, a fig tree to be in harvest, for it to be producing figs, would be indicated by the fact it has leaves. The fact it has leaves would then expect a person coming up to it, oh, there's going to be something to eat on it. But there's nothing to eat on it. And because of that, it has no, no effect, has no benefit. And so Jesus wants that picture to end immediately, so he curses the fig tree. The disciples realize that it withers, and they're like shocked by it. Now, this is not two quick tips from Jesus on how to have hocus-pocus faith, that you can be like a Christian magician saying things. I move that Bible here. I move that car here. That's not all what's going on here in the text. What's happening in the text and hence why Matthew places it where he places it, and the story as it's unfolding, is that he is basically giving a commentary on the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, who seemingly had all of the vestiges of what would appear to be fruitful worship, and yet there was nothing actually on the tree. There was no actual devotion to him. There was no actual care for the Lord's word, for the Lord's Savior. And so, as a result of that, Jesus rebukes it. He's rebuking essentially a hypocritical faith that says one thing and does another. Now, friends, what I want you to see here in the text is what Jesus is now commending in verse 21. And this is why I say Jesus informs our faith. He says, if you have faith and do not doubt, that's two sides of the same coin, you know, I do what's been done, but you'll see it happen. And if whatever you ask in prayer, you'll receive if you have faith. Friends, the challenge that Jesus is putting at the feet of every listener at that time and even here tonight is, do you believe in who Jesus is according to what Jesus has done, according to what Jesus has said for the purpose that Jesus has laid out? If so, you will bear fruit in your life your life will bear fruit. But if not, then it's simply a matter of a false tree that appears to be religious, but in the end has no trust in the Lord. This is the question we have to ask ourselves tonight. Do we believe God? Will we have faith in Him? And friend, that's a challenge to put at the feet of some of you here tonight who have never surrendered your life to Christ. You not only have not laid your cloak in front of Jesus, you've not laid your life in front of Jesus. And the reason is because you're wanting to make sure that the terms of which God would provide for you that you agree to before you finally surrender. That's not how faith works, friends. 
That's not how faith works. Everybody has faith. The question is, in whom and where do you place your faith? Some here tonight choose, perhaps even now as I speak to you, to place your faith in someone or something other than Christ. And if so, and I mean this to be kind to you, that faith, as sincere as it is, as commendable as a virtue as it might seem, will not produce what you're hoping it will. It will not deliver. Others of you perhaps are wandering in your faith. You feel weak in your faith. Friends, I'm asking you to learn from the blind and the lame in verse 14, who came to Jesus and he healed them. Would you come back to the Lord and ask him to heal you, to help you where you are indeed wandering in your faith? We see this text here tonight. We see a Savior who is worthy of praise, a God who works over the span of years, not just in minutes or hours or days that we hoped, a God who is jealous to be worshiped and consistently and, casually, and consistently and convictionally to be done so, not casually throughout life, and a faith that produces, not just a faith that performs in front of others, but a faith that produces true obedience in Christ, as we saw even in last week, verse 34 of chapter 20, of chapter 20 they recovered their sight and they followed Him. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.